The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to you, Lord Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you right now through Jesus Christ, our Lord, if we pray in his name. Amen. A couple of Sundays ago, one of your children came up to me, four or five years old, and she wanted to tell me her definition of church. And she told me, at church, we celebrate Christmas every week. We just do it on the wrong day. And I thought, that's that's so beautiful because what she's saying is there's something that we do here that's supposed to be seriously joyful. There's something about us that's to be truly joyful as well. And that's the, the theme of this book that we're studying, the theme of the book of Philippians. And once again, our passage begins by Paul mentioning joy. The first part says to write the same things is no trouble. What he said immediately before that is rejoice. Again, that's the same thing said over and over. And then he goes on in our passage, I was just read for you, to describe and to clarify what it is to be a Christian. And so what is a Christian? And how do you answer that question? I have a handful of pictures on my shelves in my office. There's a picture of my wife and my three boys. And then, of course, there's the glass-etched picture of my infamous misadventure with my swimsuit at our swim party years ago. If you don't know that story, you'll hear it at some point, I'm sure. And then there's an archangel, a stone carving and an archangel that belonged to Betty House, who passed away a few years ago. Many of you knew her. And then there's a, a picture of Andrew Halton, who many of you also knew. And then there's a picture of Leslie Newbigin, who I assume none of you know. He was a pastor turned missionary, turned theologian. He wrote this book called The Household of God. And it was significantly influential for me. In this book, he asks, how is someone made incorporate into Christ? Which is a very sort of nerdy and British way of asking, what is a Christian? And then he gives three answers in three consecutive chapters in this book. He gives the Protestant answer, the Catholic answer, and the charismatic answer. Protestant answer, he says, is a Christian is someone who believes the good news of Jesus after having the word of God preached to them. It's the Protestant answer. And then he says, a Christian is someone who has been baptized and continues in the covenant uh, that he is or she has been brought into, especially through receiving the body and blood of Christ at the Eucharist. That's the Catholic answer. And then he says, a Christian is someone whose heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit, who lives and dwells within them and is at work in their life and in their heart. That's the charismatic answer. And then he says, who's right? And then his answer is yes. 
because of what Paul says here. In verse nine, Paul speaks about being found in Christ. Everything the Newbegin says is predicated upon that. This is his answer. This is his definition of what it is to be a Christian. He speaks of being found in Christ. So what does it mean to be found in Christ? And what is the connection of joy to that? Three points this morning. The dogs, the confidence, and the loss. First of all, the dogs. Three times in verse two, Paul says, watch out or look out, beware. And if someone's gonna speak that emphatically and warning us, we should probably pay attention. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators, which sounds kind of creepy, but that's the word he uses. Look out for the mutilators. These are not three different groups. It's one group that he describes in three different ways. And I've told you that pretty much everything's fine with this church. There's no major theological errors at work. There's no major moral controversy or issues that he's dealing with. But he's concerned that this group, that there's a group that has been going around to other churches, infiltrating them. And he's afraid that he might show up there in Philippi and begin to to disrupt them as they have disrupted others. And he calls them dogs because they were made up of a group of Jewish Christians. And they were insisting that in order to fully become a Christian, you had to fully embrace the Jewish life and culture and all of their Old Testament religious practices, everything written and prescribed in the Mosaic law. And if you didn't, you were still unclean. You were still unacceptable to God and to God's people, just like a dog. Now, we love our dogs here in the modern West. We love our dogs here in Austin, Texas. Our dogs in Austin, Texas live better lives than millions of people all around the world. We take them everywhere. We take them to restaurants. We take them to coffee shops. We take them to the airport. We take them on airplanes. And I got to be honest with you, I don't get it. I just don't get it. It's maybe the Oklahoma in me. How many of you all sleep with your dogs? Actually, I don't want to know because that's the line. That's the line for me between clean and unclean and and acceptable and, and unacceptable. And the ancient Jews, they drew very, very different lines with their dogs even than I do because a dog will eat almost anything, like a pig, especially a hungry dog. They'll eat refuse. They'll eat trash. They'll eat injured, alive animals. They'll eat dead animals. They'll eat pretty much everything or anything that the Mosaic law said made someone ceremoniously unclean and unable to go into worship. And so dogs were seen as unclean and loathed by ancient Jews. And in the minds of many ancient Jews, dogs were associated with who? The Gentiles, all the non-Jews. And it was the worst of insults to be called a dog by a Jew. And that's what this group was doing. They were going into these churches and they're saying, you're all dogs. Doesn't matter if you believed in Christ. Doesn't matter if you've been baptized and are partaking of the Eucharist. Doesn't matter if the Holy Spirit is present and evidently at work in your life. It doesn't matter if you haven't embraced everything that the Mosaic law says, you're still a dog. And so Paul flips the insult here. And he says, no, 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 they're the dogs. They're the evildoers, which is a a phrase from the Psalms that speaks about the enemies of God's people and the people that do them harm. And they're the mutilators, which is a reference to circumcision. Because before Jesus in the Old Testament, that was the mark of beginning and participating in a membership among God's people was circumcision. And this group was saying that right still continues today. You still have to take that that mark upon yourself if you're going to be accepted and recognized as a people of God. And Paul says that for Gentiles to become circumcised, it's like unnecessary mutilation. He says, we're the circumcision, meaning we have and possess everything spiritually that circumcision 
pointed to in the Old Testament, and it's changed in Jesus. And so you're not unclean. You're not unacceptable. And before I go on, ask yourself this one question, who's unacceptable to you? And, and who, what group of people do you look at and you think, ah, unclean? And think hard and think honestly. Who do you treat this way? Someone, and why? Secondly, the confidence. Three times in verses three through four, Paul says that this, this group of, of Jewish Christians and their, their emphasis upon Jewish ceremonies, dietary restrictions, the right of circumcision, it's all putting confidence in the flesh. Do you see that phrase? It's very important, three different times. Putting confidence in the flesh. And then he contrasts it with glorying in Christ. And to ex- help explain this, I want to connect it to what I said last week about vainglory. You remember, if you were here, what I said about vainglory, what it is? Back in chapter two, verse three, Paul speaks about vainglory. He, there it's translated conceit in the ESV, but it's literally empty glory. It's what vanity is. Vanity or glory. I've, I've told you so many times what glory is, what real glory, which is what he speaks of here. Glory's weight, it's importance, it's significance, it's, it's weightiness, it's beauty, it's weightiness in beauty. And empty glory is that which seems important immediately right now. It seems significant. It seems of, of complete total value, but eventually it's gone, maybe very quickly. It's there, it's vanished. It's ephemeral. It's vain. Vanity is an inordinate attachment to eventually empty things. Things that make you momentarily look important, significant, or worthy of praise, and you become obsessed with how people see you now. Maybe you remember my main illustration of vanity last week, which was Nate from Ted Lasso. I never used a Ted Lasso illustration until now, until last week, but now the floodgates are open. And so Nate was this, was this unathletic, short, stubby, kind of nerdy guy who was, who was the manager of the football club there in Richmond, but Coach Lasso makes him an assistant coach. And he gets this taste of the praise, the acclaim, the attention that comes from being a coach. And he begins to lust for more and more of it. He begins to run and to wreck all of his relationships in order that he might grasp just a little bit more of that attention, that claim. And in the second to last episode in season two, he, he asked one of his coworkers to go and help him buy and pick out a new suit because he wants to look the part of being the boss, wants to look powerful and important and worthy of attention. And so this, this young lady does. And, and he, he chooses this, this black suit and out he walks and in this, in this new black suit, he tries to kiss his coworker, even though she's the girlfriend of one of the coaches, one of his friends, one of his coworkers. And it's almost like the sacramental moment. The, the suit is all black, black tie, black, black pants, black shirt, black coat. And the second that he does it, he's changed. He's never the same afterward. His hair begins to gray. It's increasingly gray as the episode goes on in the season finale because it's almost as though he's dying from the inside out because he is. He's eaten up with the vice of vanity from the inside out. And not just that, he is also someone who's doing what Paul's talking about here. He's putting all confidence in the flesh because that is someone who truly believes that they are accepted, that they're beloved, that they're important, that they're actually somebody based upon what other people can see on them on the outside, their image, or based upon all the things that they have achieved or done. So their reputation. It's their image or it's their reputation, and that's what can atone for all the wrongs in their life. That's what can make up for everything wrong, busted, or broken that they've done and make them approval 
admirable, respectable, lovable even. And Paul says here, I had that. I had it. And I gave it up. I had this confidence that I was approved, not just by people, but by God. And I gave it up because in the end, it's rubbish. That's the word he uses there in verse eight. But in verses five through six, he has this list. Did you notice this list as it was being read? This list of, of, of four inherited privileges, things that he was born with, and then three things that he had accomplished. And, and all of those things relate to what this group was demanding that the church do. And he says, all that they demand, I had more. I had far more and I gave it up because in the end, it's empty. It's rubbish. And we're not gonna read Paul's list. It's there for you if you wanna look at it. I'm not, we're not gonna read it because we probably wouldn't understand it unless I took a lot of time. Or, you know, also we just don't care about his list. But we have our own list. We have our own list. You have your own list. And so what is your list? What is it that you think will make you somebody? Is marriage on your list? Is dating someone on your list? Is being pregnant on your list? Or being educated, accepted by this school, SAT scores, grades, good enough to get into that school? Or being wealthy, living in this neighborhood or that neighborhood, having this type of house, being able to go on these sorts of vacations? Or maybe it's your physical body. Maybe it's being physically fit or physically beautiful or athletic or how you vote, being a Republican or being moderate, being vaccinated, not being vaccinated. Those are lists now. Or simply being a good person and all that that means, respectable and, and, and well-mannered and trustworthy, responsible, not having to be taken care of by others, but being able to take care of us, being mature because you have your list. And, and deep down, the problem is, is that we begin to think that if we could read it off like Paul reads it off, then we would become somebody. And when we would look in the mirror, we'd love ourselves. But, when, but if we fail that list, what happens? Look in the mirror, we don't love ourselves. We spit upon ourselves. We spit upon the image that we see there. It's not the image that we want. In fact, that's exactly what Nate does after he tries to kiss his coworker and she doesn't receive his advances. He rushes back into the dressing room in his black suit with his graying, dying hair, and he looks at himself in the mirror and he spits on himself because he hates himself. He hates his vanity. He hates his list, but he can't stop living for his list. So what is your list? Builds you up or destroys you based upon how you perform. Makes you love yourself, have your, hate yourself because you have your list. You have, we all have our lists and our relationships show us our lists. So too does our emotional lives show us our lists. Our day-to-day life shows us our lists. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, it shows us our list. We all have a list. And so are you confident in the flesh this morning? Because Paul says you shouldn't be. But none of us should be. Because in the end, it's empty. In the end, it's rubbish. Third point, the loss In verse seven, the mood shifts. It brightens, in fact. Paul begins to use lots of accounting language. Not that accounting language or math ever brightened my mood, but that's the language here. It's what happens. Paul speaks of losses and gains three different times. He speaks of counting three times in verses seven and eight. It's as if he's imagining two ledgers, two different columns. And in one 
column in his old way of thinking, his old understanding of, of how God relates to us. He puts all of, the, all of the things on his list, all of the good things that he has done and accomplished. And then the other, all of the losses, all of the brokenness, all of the sadness, all of the things that he's done wrong, all of it. But then in verse seven, he begins to, to talk about how this shift has happened in his thinking. It's like his Damascus road being described here, because at some point he realized that there's not two lists, there's not two ledgers. There's not two columns. And everything that was in his gain column, he moves over to the loss column. He says, whatever was gained to me, I now realize it's just a loss, that there's no difference. Not with God. With God, there's only one column. There's one ledger. And it's the loss column. It reminds me of a story, this probably apocryphal, legendary story of Tsar Nicholas that I've heard many times before. It's the story of this young man who was the son of a friend of the czar. And he had been given a a post as the paymaster at this border fortress there in Russia. But he had a gambling problem. And before too long, he he began to to steal money, to take a few rubles, a few more rubles out of the treasury there they're supposed to be paying everyone out of. And he didn't realize how much he had taken until one day he heard that some officials were going to come and to check the books. And so he began to do some accounting on his own and he realized how massive the debt was. Now, there was nothing that he could do to ever set things right. And so he decided the only way out of this situation was to kill himself. And so he loaded his revolver, his service revolver. And on his notes, across all of the notes, showing all of the money that he had taken, he, he wrote just two sentences. So great a debt, who can pay? And then in order to bolster his nerve, he began to drink in order that he might shoot himself. But He drank too much and he passed out. And then later that evening, Tsar Nicholas, legend has it as it was his accustomed to dress in the the uniforms of a common serviceman and walk around his troops. And so he comes to the fortress and he sees a light on this office that should be dark. And he goes in there and he sees the man passed out. He sees the gun. He sees the alcohol. He sees all the ledgers open and he realized very, very quickly what happened. And he immediately thinks, I'm going to have this, this, this kid arrested, even though I know him, even though I know his dad, I'm going to have him arrested and tried for treason. But then he sees those sentences. He sees how great a debt who can pay. And in a moment of compassion, he writes one word beneath those sentences and he walks out. And the next morning, the young man wakes up and he realizes that he passed out. He, he goes for his service revolver in order to to, to kill himself. But then that one word that the czar wrote caught his attention. And that one word was the word Nicholas. And then next to that one word was a small sack of gold coins containing the exact amount necessary to balance the accounts. And friends, that is exactly what Paul means when he says in verse nine, I don't have a righteousness of my own. Righteousness, I've told you many times, it means approval. I do not have an approval with God based on the law, based on all the things that I've done, good, bad, or otherwise, based on all the bad things that I haven't done, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, the approval that comes from God and is by faith. And I want you to change one word in your text. In your, in your liturgy, if you have it before, if you brought your own Bible, I want you to cross out the words faith in Christ, and I want you to write in faithfulness of Christ, because That's the better translation. And that's the gospel. It's not just that Jesus has died to pay the debt of the consequences of your sin. He has, but even more so, he's also lived a perfectly faithful, obedient life for you and shared it with you. 
shared not only his death for your forgiveness, but also his life. It's because of who he is that he can pay. And it begs the question, how do you think that God looks at you? What do you believe that God sees when he looks upon you? When he looks upon you, upon what does he gaze? Because listen to me, he doesn't care about your physical beauty. He doesn't care about your physical fitness or your health, physical health. He doesn't care the way that you care. He doesn't care the way that we care about that. In our sin and our brokenness, we care too much. God doesn't care about it. He doesn't care about kids. He doesn't care about your performance in school. Not the way that you care. Or your performance in sports. Not the way that you care. Not the way that your friends care. Not even the way that your parents care. We care too much. God doesn't gaze upon that when he looks upon us. He doesn't look upon your wealth. He doesn't look upon your success stories and the business deals that you've closed or the business deals that you've failed to close and the money that you've wasted. He doesn't look and gaze upon your left ring finger or how many children you have or how many friends that you have. He doesn't look at your clothes or the house that you live in or the neighborhood that you live in or or the the boxes you check at the ballot box. He doesn't care about that. We care inordinately about that. He doesn't care like we care. He doesn't care about our ethnicity the way that we care or our nationality or our immigration status. He doesn't care like we care. We care too much. We care inordinately. We imbue all of those things with a moral significance that they simply do not possess. There's a line from a poem by W.H. Auden that I often think of. It's a poem entitled Ash Wednesday. And Auden wrote it after he had become a Christian and publicly acknowledged himself as such. And the literary critics, they skewered him. They skewered him and all of his, all of his work, primarily because of his Christianity. And in the third or fourth line of that poem called Ash Wednesday, he says, teach me to care and not to care. Teach me to care and not to care. Teach me to care about earthly things, but to care about earthly things the way that you do. And teach me not to care about them in the way that you don't care about them. Because we care too much. We have our lists. And we imbue them with a moral significance. We give them an emotional authority. We let them determine how we treat people, how we, how we even treat ourselves. And we use those lists like clubs, beating upon other people and beating upon us. We look at ourselves in the mirror and we spit upon ourselves because we care about them in ways that God doesn't care. He doesn't look upon anything in your list when he looks upon you, nothing. He looks upon Jesus when he looks upon you if you are a Christian, and that's what he sees. That's why he says in verse nine, found in him, found in him, hidden in him, covered in him, wrapped in him. As we sang earlier, washed in him. His death for me, his approval, his righteousness, his approval for me, both share his glory, his very, very real, infinite, eternal glory shared with us. That's why he says, did you notice Christ Jesus, my Lord? Paul never uses the personal pronoun like that anywhere else. It's incredible. These are incredibly important truths for him. Not the Lord, my Lord. Friends, you have to let go of all your good rubbish in order to gain Christ and be found in him. You have to stop believing and trusting that achieving your list wins you something with God. It does not. And you have to begin to believe that Jesus is God's son, is God in the flesh, everything necessary for you to secure God's smile 
for you. God smiles upon you when he looks upon you. He smiles upon you. The very delight that he has over Jesus, he has in and over you because of what Jesus has done. So let go of your rubbish. Let go of it and believe that. The rich young ruler in our gospel reading, he couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. He was a wealthy man. And his wealth, whether inherited or earned, it was at the top of his list that he thought made himself somebody. And he was a rich man. But that's all he ever was. If you have money, let go of it. Go of it as the source of your identity, as something that you have to have in order to make you something. You're, you're, you're not a wealthy man if you have money. You're a Christian who happens to be wealthy. Or if you're a mother, don't make it your identity. You're not a mother. You are a Christian who has children. Or kids, if you play sports, if you do well in school, don't make it your identity. You're, you're, you're not a student. You're not a basketball player. You're not a swimmer. You're not a football player. You're a kid who studies. You're a kid who plays these sports. Don't make them into something that they're not. Or if you're a doctor, or a CEO, a business leader, or a professor, or whatever, be a Christian who works those jobs in the way that Ecclesiastes talks about, but nothing more. It's not who you are. And care about them like God cares about them, but no more. He cares about you infinitely and eternally. He does not care about your list. Because in the end, your list is rubbish to him. You are worth everything to him, which is why he became rubbish. Jesus took on flesh, became rubbish. He died on the cross and was cast away on this place called Golgotha, which is where they crucified people. It was a trash heap. He became rubbish in order that he might share his glory with you. And God's very smile, and that can bring you joy. Joy is your soul's taste of God's delight when he looks at you. It is the warmth of his smile. You have it. You already have it in Christ. That's something to rejoice over. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will pour out your spirit that we might truly believe and rest in that which we have been given in through your son. And it might bring us true joy that your smile, your delight in us might bring us true joy this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.